Thank you for tuning in to the Sermon of the Week podcast, a work of Scattered Abroad, which is overseen by the East Hill Church of Christ in Pulaski, Tennessee. You can find our website at scatteredabroad.org. In this podcast, we seek to sow the Word of God by spreading the gospel message. Each episode is a lesson that was presented from one of your hosts within this network. We hope that this will benefit your study and your walk with Christ. We're expected to be God-fearing people. We're expected to be people that trust in the Lord and believe that God is working things out for good. But if I'm being honest with you, I'm not seeing a lot of that right now. And I think you could agree with me on that. Majority of the world and majority of this country, it seems, believes that their faith lies in some candidate in office or in some government leader or whatever it may be. And the sad truth of that is you're not going to win every election. Your candidate will not be successful every time they're up for office. But there's one candidate that is never going to be voted out, will always be ruling. And that candidate rules in the kingdoms of men, Daniel chapter 5 and verse 21. And so how do we marry the idea of when we don't think life is going our way, that God is still in control? I would submit to you this morning that when we think about the providence of God, we have to ask ourselves in times such as these or in times such as we've been in the last several years in this country, is it perhaps the case that God is working through this country and has a purpose that he is fulfilling that maybe we don't understand, maybe we're not able to completely see and fully grasp, but that doesn't mean that God's not in control. And so this morning, I want us to look at that idea of the providence of God And I want us to study that topic together, but I need to go ahead and preempt myself a little bit here. I can't give you a definitive answer today on what is and what is not providential. I have my ideas. I have moments in my own life where I believe that providence worked within my life and God helped me, but I don't know that for certain. And so I have to be careful by assigning providence where it has not been told by God and in the scriptures And so as we start to study about this topic, I want you to know right off the bat, if you think that this sermon is going to answer every question you've ever had about providence, I can't do that for you. And I don't know of many preachers who can. And so we want to start by defining our terms this morning. I want us to look at the idea of providence being defined. If you look at the New Oxford Dictionary, I'm weird, I don't like Webster. I've always kind of fallen into the New Oxford Dictionary category. And New Oxford Dictionary defines providence as following. The protective care of God or of nature as a spiritual power. Providence, God or nature as providing protective or spiritual care. And finally, it says a timely preparation for future eventualities. And so you're timely taken care of and providentially because of your care and preparation, you are prepared for something. And you might think about a a winter storm that comes this way. You know in the south, if we hear that snow is coming, we believe it's the end of the world. And so we go and we raid the stores and we get bread and milk. You thought the pandemic was bad. We've been doing that for years with milk and bread when a winter storm comes. And so it really shouldn't have surprised us that the toilet paper and the paper towels and the Lysol and the Clorox would all disappear within a matter of days. I found recently at a store, for the first time in months, disinfectant spray. And not one of those tiny bottles that they've been selling. An actual big bottle of disinfectant spray. 
And then I started to notice them popping up here and there, but I hadn't seen them in 10 months because they've just been really hard to find and really hard to get because people have been buying them up. And so when you think about being prepared for a future event like that, we talk about that being it was providential that we were ready for that. And so that's the New Oxford Dictionary's definition of the word providence. But the Bible Dictionary, when you look at Paul Sain's ready reference for growing, growing Christians, he defines providence as such. Providence is from the Latin word that means to foresee, to perceive in advance, or to note beforehand. In the Greek, the similar word means to note beforehand and to know or think about in advance. And it's found five times in the New Testament. You find the word provide, which is found in Romans chapter 12 and verse 17, where it says, Repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. 2 Corinthians 8.21 says, Providing honorable things. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own. Now that word provide, we've talked about before, and that literally means to consider in advance. And it doesn't say that you're just considering in advance the physical needs of that family. But we're talking about all aspects, whether it's physical or spiritual. If a man does not consider in advance and take care of his family's needs, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? We talk about that idea of providing for somebody. We're looking at that mindset of looking in, in advance or looking ahead and considering what might happen. And so when we get into the next time that it's found, do you find the word provision? That's found in Romans 13 and verse 14 where it says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So there we're told, don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Don't provide for that aspect of your life. Avoid that mindset. Make no provision for the lust of the flesh. And then third term is providence itself. In Acts 24 and verse 2, we're told when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation saying, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. The New King James says, but the idea of the word providence is found there through your providence, through your foresight. And we often cannot trace out the providence of God when it's working or acting at the exact moment. It's hard to know. It's just not something that we're given a clear understanding of in Scripture that, oh, right there, you can pinpoint it. That's providence. You know that that's providence. Paul himself would say, perhaps such and such was providential. And if an apostle of the Lord is not comfortable saying that something was providence, I'm not comfortable saying that something's providence. And I think you can understand why I would feel that way. But we often can't trace it, and God's going to work out his eternal purpose for the total good of, notice this, the whole human race. God's not going to just pick and choose. God's going to benefit the whole world. And if the whole world would turn to God, would they not be benefited? They would. Now, they won't because we understand that not everyone is going to repent and turn to God. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 tell us very clearly that only a few versus many will make it into paradise because only a few will choose to follow him. And many will go down the path that leads to destruction. And so we know that it's not possible for every single... It's not going to happen that every single person would become a Christian. But if they did, if say that tomorrow you woke up and found out that every single person on this earth had turned to God, would God provide for that group of people the same way that he's providing for them now he would still be providing for them but they would just simply be in a covenant relationship with him you know the thing that we study about with providence is 
when things don't seem to be good, they seem to be evil, it affects both groups of people. Whether those that are in the side of evil are excited because evil is happening and it's occurring, or it's affecting the people who are righteous and they're being persecuted or punished for whatever the case may be, it still affects both groups of people. And how is it possible that God could be working in such a way? Well, God chooses to work in ways that I'm not quite understanding of, and so I have to just study what I can from the Scriptures to gain the knowledge as best as possible. But he's going to work out his purpose for the whole human race. And his omniscient power allows him to know what is necessary to provide for the sustaining of the world. In general, and his people specifically, God continually cares for his creation. You have some people in the world that say that God basically wound the world up like a toy and then let it go, and when it's done, it's done. But that's not what we really find in Scripture. We find God's hand throughout the whole message of the Bible. And even to this point, when we're studying something about providence, we still can know that providence still occurs today. But like I said, we just don't know how it occurs. God's still working throughout this world. God is still involved in protecting and providing for this world. His method might have changed a little bit, but his motive and his love has not. And so God's going to find a way to make it work. So that's the definition of providence. But let me give you some facts about providence this morning. Number one, God protects all who follow after him. God protects all who follow after him. If you look at Romans 8 and verse 28, the Bible says there when Paul was writing to the church at Rome, we know that all things work together for what? For good. To them that love God and to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, secondly, the second fact I want to give you is that things might not seem good at the time. They might seem evil. And yet God might mean them for good. In the case of Joseph, you remember last year we studied the book of Genesis. We had a two-year study on that book. And we got to chapter 50 and we started to notice something interesting about Joseph's perspective of his persecution that his brothers dished out to him. He says in chapter 50 and verse 19 of the book of Genesis, Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save many people alive. And he says on, Now therefore don't fear, I will nourish you, your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You stop for just a moment and ask yourself this simple question. What would the life that you have look like if you didn't meet your significant other, for example? You stop for just a moment and picture that. And for many of us in this room right now, it'd be empty. Those that are able to be here to help us with our singing and whatnot, many spouses are represented. And many of those spouses, if they weren't here, what would your life look like? Many of us have children. What would it look like if our spouses weren't real or we never met them? What would your spiritual life look like? I know in some cases, the person that you married is the one that brought you to the gospel and helped you learn the truth. How would your life be if you hadn't met that person? What about the job that you have? What would your life look like if you didn't have that job or you didn't have this, you didn't have that? And you can go on and on and we can continue to bring up examples, but I think you understand the idea of what Joseph was saying was, 
had I not been sold into slavery, now stop and think about this for a minute, had I not been sold into slavery, severely persecuted by my brothers, and not only when I got sold into slavery, had I not then been accused by Potiphar's wife, had I not been thrown in prison, had I, and you can go on throughout the whole story of Joseph, had I not been forgotten for the amount of time that I was forgotten, many people would have died. Think about that. That's a good perspective when we look at something around us that we don't appreciate, that we don't like. We have to ask ourselves the quote-unquote silver lining. What actually can make this work for good? And Joseph's mindset was, how many people would have died if God had not preserved me through this suffering and if I hadn't been sold into slavery? Now, that's not a good argument for favoritism. You know, if Jacob and his father had not favored him, well, then he wouldn't have ever saved those people, and therefore favoritism is not a big deal. Now, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is despite your circumstances, God is greater. And God's purpose can be fulfilled despite what you're experiencing and what I'm experiencing. And Joseph's mindset was, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so it wasn't really a bad thing. God was able to protect me, and not only me, but he was able to work through me to protect however many people were saved by the preparation, coincidentally providing, that they did for their people in Egypt when that famine was on its way. Seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, they weren't seven years of famine that were difficult because during the seven years of plenty, what did they do? They laid up in store and prepared for the famine. They were ready. Just like if they'd heard that a winter weather you know, watch was coming, they'd go and get the items that they absolutely needed to be able to make it through. And God had provided for them during that time of plenty so they would not have need during the time of famine. And Joseph played a very important role in that. Third fact I can give you about providence is we won't always know what's truly happening at that moment. I've mentioned that several times now, but I hope you get the point that I'm trying to really drill that home because there are people today that are confused about miraculous power versus providential power. And you have some people that would say, well, I know that was a miracle. But today we find God working providentially, not miraculously. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 10 tells us that when that which is perfect is come, that which is done in part will be done away. And coincidentally, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we find Paul writing that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and he goes through this list of what it's profitable for. But verse 17 is what's really important because he actually uses a very similar word that the man of God may be perfect or complete. When that which is complete is come, that which is done in part will be done away. At the time of the writing of 1 Corinthians, what was not completed yet? Well, the scriptures weren't completed yet. And so what was necessary? According to Exodus chapter 4, miraculous power was necessary to confirm the message that was being delivered by the prophets and by the apostles. Those in the olden times, in Old Testament times and in New Testament times, prior to the completion of the word of God, had to perform miraculous power and miraculous works to confirm that they really were sent from God, that they really did have the authority to give a message that God really did send them. But Paul writes to the Corinthian church, that's not going to last forever. When we finally have that which is supposed to be complete, we won't need miraculous power anymore, and therefore God switched to providential care as his main method of providing for this world and taking care of it. In Philippians chapter 1, or Philemon 1, I should say, verse 15, for perhaps, Paul writes, 
He therefore departed for a season that you should receive him forever. Perhaps, again, I say, if Paul says perhaps, I'm not going to ever say it's definite. I have my ideas, and I'm sure Paul had an idea that that was more likely providential than not. But when he wrote to the people that he's writing to, he says perhaps, maybe, just maybe it was. The fourth fact that I'd like to give you is that God has provided salvation for everyone. For everyone. He has made that providential care for every single person. If you look at 1 Timothy 2.4, the Bible says, Who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. God does not want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to be saved. But you and I have to make that decision that we're going to become Christians that we will obey what God has told us that we have to do, that we will follow after his commandments. And we know that the scriptures tell us that more than just 2 Timothy 2.4, or 1 Timothy 2.4, God wants us to be saved. The final fact I want to give you before we go to some examples is 2 Corinthians 9.8, that God is able to do anything. We have people today that they, they don't believe that. They believe that God is a nice idea that God is a good story that you can tell your children, but he's just that. He's a story. He's not really somebody that is in existence. He's not really deity. He doesn't actually have the power to provide for anybody. He's just a simple bedtime story that years ago somebody cooked up in order to help people sleep at night. Well, 2 Corinthians 9.8 tells us that God is able to make all grace abound to you. And that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. God is able, and not just able, he is willing to do anything that would help us be saved. And you can find that throughout the example of his son coming to this earth and dying so that you and I would have hope of eternal life. That was not done on accident. That was a, pur that was a purposeful decision that God and Jesus made to be able to save mankind. And so that's, if we're looking at defining our terms in the first place this morning, that's how we would do that. Secondly, this morning, I want us to look at some examples of providence that we can find in Scripture, that we can know that God did actually work because we're told that he was working throughout them. But this is something, there's a difference. We can know these examples, God worked through them. Are we going to have a book written to us today that says, Michael, you remember when this happened in your life, that was providence? God was working through. I'm not going to have that. And so that's what I mean. We don't know. We can't always know. It's especially for our lives. But these examples we're going to talk about, God is either specifically mentioned or you can know by proxy, God was heavily involved. And so let's begin with Joseph. We're not going to spend a ton of time on Joseph, but I want you to think about the fact that in chapter 37 all the way to chapter 50, Joseph had served God and he was repaid by being sold into slavery. All Joseph did before getting on his brother's bad side was what? Well, two things. One, he was loved more by their father. He had no control over that. Did Joseph try to make his father love him more? The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible simply says that his father loved Joseph more than all the other brothers. And in fact, not only did he love him more, he showed it. There is one thing between and I need to speak kind of in broad terms here because the best words are escaping me, but there is a difference between having a child you connect better with than another and playing the favorite. You know, you might have a child that has all of the same likes and interests that you have. Pretty easy to get along and talk to that child about that, isn't it? And for me, with my son, we kind of have both ends of the spectrum. 
Adam will sometimes come up to me and we'll be watching a football game and he'll just sit with me and we'll watch the game for a little bit. And when a touchdown happens, we get excited and we cheer and we can talk about the game with each other and we have a moment where we can actually connect as best as possible with a three-year-old. But then there are other times where he comes up to me and he's talking about something and I have no idea what he's saying. I have no clue what he's talking about. I don't understand it. And so it's hard for me in that moment to connect with him. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a child that you connect better with than another. Of course, you love your children equally, but you might have a child that you just get along with a little better because of the likes being the same. The problem became that Joseph loved, was loved, I should say, more by his father. It wasn't that he connected with his son better. It was that he made a conscious decision to love Joseph more in so much that he showed special treatment to him. Let me give you this coat of many colors, and that would not have been a cheap purchase. That would not have been something that was very easy to just say, oh, it was no big deal. It took time, it took effort, and it, caught, it was more than likely very costly. And he shows Joseph this favoritism that all of his brothers are locating and seeing, and now we find the problem. His brothers begin to hate Joseph, and they want to get rid of him. The second thing that Joseph did that was wrong, according to his brothers, was he had a dream once where his brother's haystacks were bowing down to his haystack. He had this group of haystacks, and all of them were bowing and showing observance and reverence to this one haystack, which was Joseph's. And when Joseph happened to tell his brothers this, they got even more upset. And so they sell him into slavery. Now, they wanted to kill him. Uh, <laughs> they decided not to kill him. But the answer is not necessarily much better. Let's just kill him. No, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery and maybe they'll kill him and it won't be our problem. That was more than likely the hope was that if we get rid of him, whatever happens to him, it's not on us. It's on them. Not realizing that by selling him into slavery, they played a huge role in whatever happened to Joseph next because they were the reason he was even sold into slavery. But God, during this time, provided care for Joseph and preserved him through horrible circumstances. When the case of his brothers, when they had this dreamer coming, Reuben saying, shed no blood, but cast him into a pit, whether we realize it or not, wasn't it a good thing that they didn't kill him? Yes. It wasn't better necessarily that they still sold him into slavery, but it was better than killing him. They at least did not take his life. And remember Genesis chapter 50, what were we told that, had Joseph not gone to Egypt, had he not been sold into slavery, had he not gone through the terrible years in prison and all of the other things that happened to him, many people would have died. Many people would have died. And perhaps the entire place of Egypt would have been wiped off the face of the earth. Who knows? And so Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers was a providential care, it seems, by God to preserve him from death and take him to a place where he could make an impact. But not only was that something where God provided for him, but the slavery that he even experienced. Notice when Joseph is taken to be a slave, who does he become the slave for? Well, Potiphar. And we're told in Genesis chapter 39 that Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, he came and bought Joseph. And we're told in verse 2 of Genesis 39, the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. 
And so evidently part of the process was to make Joseph a successful man, even to the point where Joseph, when Potiphar's wife takes a fancy to him, Joseph says, look, everything in this house, I have a part and I have, a, I have the ability to take except you. You are the only thing that's been kept back from me. And so Potiphar, not only did he trust Joseph, he put Joseph in charge of everything, but his most prized possession, and you know what I mean when I say that, that his wife was untouchable. She was off limits, and I think I understand why. That almost sounds like a biblical practice, don't you think? That we shouldn't be allowing our wives to just run around or to anything of that nature. And Potiphar says, everything in my house is yours but my wife. And Joseph says that to Potiphar's wife. You're the only person that I'm not allowed to have any say in and I'm not allowed to have any real role with. And don't you find it interesting that we're never given her name, that she's always spoken of in the possessive sense, that she belongs to someone else? She is Potiphar's wife. It's the only time we ever find any inclination given about what her name would be, and I'm sure that wasn't her actual name, and it almost seems like special care was given to put in my mind and your mind that this is wrong. What is happening is not supposed to be happening, and Joseph understood that, and we should understand it as well. And yet, you know what happened? Potiphar's wife accuses Joseph of trying to take advantage of her, and so he is put in prison. But even the prison that he experienced, the time there in Genesis 41, verses 37 through 41, he is in there for a time, and the Bible tells us that the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. And he said to his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and as wise as you. What's going to happen? Well, you're going to be over my house. That's quite a step up from Potiphar, isn't it? Potiphar was an officer of Pharaoh, but now Pharaoh says, you shall rule over my house. You'll be over my house, and my people shall be ruled according to whose word? Yours. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. You stop and think about that for a second. That the only place that Pharaoh says he has more authority is the throne itself. But as far as the governing of the people and being ruled, it's by the word of Joseph that they're being ruled. And let me ask you just a quick sidebar. Were the people benefited by a man of God ruling them? They were. Do you think they loved Joseph and everything he stood for? Probably not. Joseph was of a different religion and religious belief than they were. And yet the question is, were they benefited by the rule of Joseph? Yes. And wouldn't our country and any country benefit if we could find ways to find God-fearing people and put them into office? The answer is yes. We find that throughout the time with the kings. There were good kings, there were bad kings, and every king affected the people that they served. And so Joseph, being placed in that position by God, was able to benefit more than just himself. He benefited a whole host of people. And we know that we've studied in Genesis 50, he pointed out to his brothers what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Secondly, I want us to think about the life of Daniel for a moment. And Daniel was chosen to go into slavery. He was selected with the group of people that were taken into captivity. Not everyone was taken. 
They took able-bodied men and women, but they left those behind that were not of able-bodied to go. And we know according to what we can read that Daniel chapter 1, Daniel would have been around the age of maybe 18, maybe 19 years old, somewhere in that range. And Daniel's one that when he was first tested to deny God and to disobey what God had been telling them to do and how to live, Daniel gives us a very interesting picture because for a time when we study these Israelites and their lives, we know that they weren't living for God like they were supposed to. It was the whole reason they went into captivity. And yet in Daniel chapter 1, there's a diet presented. And Daniel says, I won't do that diet because it's against my religious beliefs. It's what, against what God has told us to do. And so can we have a competition where we can look and see which diet works better? Isn't that a bold statement? You're in captivity and you have the audacity to look at your captive or your captor and say, let me have a competition to see if your diet really does work. You think that would work? You and I watch TV shows, I'm sure, or have seen TV shows where someone is kidnapped and they're depicted as maybe making a request of their kidnapper. How does that go? Most of the time, not very well. You know, they ask for something and the kidnapper just ignores them, walks out of the room, or in some cases, they'll hit them, they'll threaten them, they'll do something that puts the fear into them that don't you ask me that again. And here's Daniel in the presence of people who have the authority to kill him. And yet he says, can we have a competition to see which diet is better? And they agree. Now that's impressive too. And after the competition is over, Daniel's men who had followed after the Lord's diet looked fairer or better than those who followed after the king's diet. And notice this. The king's diet was done away and the Lord's diet was implemented. Do you think the people in Babylon benefited by eating as the Lord was instructing them to eat? Evidently they did because Joseph's men looked better. You see a pattern here that when God works throughout the lives of people and God works to care and preserve the people that need to be preserved, that only good things follow? Even though Daniel was still in captivity... Even though Daniel and his friends would be tested throughout the rest of the book. In fact, you find chapter 2 where Nebuchadnezzar has his first dream. And Daniel is the one that goes and interprets it. Why did he do that? He didn't have to. He didn't have to do that. He could have denied and said, I'm not going to help him out. Look, he put us into captivity. Why would we help him? But instead he showed respect. He calls the king, king. O King Nebuchadnezzar, and he interprets the dream and is benefited by being placed into higher command at that point. But in Daniel chapter 3, you have a fiery furnace being taken, and Daniel's friends, we're not told where Daniel was necessarily in this moment, but Daniel's friends refused to bow and show reverence to this statue, and therefore they're thrown into the fiery furnace, but because they had obeyed God rather than men, what did God do for them? God provided for them protection. The Bible says that the furnace was so hot that the men shoveling coals into it were dying. That's a pretty hot fire. And yet when these men are taken and placed into this fire, they were walking around as if there was nothing wrong. I would have loved to have seen what that would have looked like. To see just men walking in this incredibly hot fire. And when they say, 
what's going on? They say, look, there's actually four people in there. And the other one, he has the image of the Son of God. Here's an individual that this, this is deity that we're seeing here. And you think about the looks on their faces as they find four people when they've only put in three. And then these men come out and not even a hair or even their robes were singed with the fire, completely preserved and protected. In Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. And we're told that Nebuchadnezzar has been, well, he's got that dream interpreted, but then we're told later in chapter 4 that he has this haughty attitude thinking that he did all of this and God says what? You're only where you're at because of who? Because of me. And he drives him out. He drove him out and made him as a beast of the field. Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar has a dream. Daniel goes and interprets that dream. And that very night he's placed as the third in command. But what was the dream? The dream was that Belshazzar's kingdom of Babylon would be overthrown. And in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel's second in command now because the second in command before him died during the siege of Babylon. And now Darius is going on and has been tricked into having a lion's den. And if you pray to anybody but me, you're going into that lion's den. And what happens? Daniel refuses to pray. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. And just like the fiery furnace, Daniel's protected by God. An angel sent to shut the lion's mouths. To keep them from eating Daniel. It was not, it was not that the lions were not hungry, as some might suggest, that they must have been well fed. It is not that the lions were just not really entertained by the idea of Daniel being there. Because we're told later in that very chapter that when the governors and satraps were taken with their family and their children and thrown into the lion's den, that the lions had devoured them before their bones hit the ground. They were hungry. They were just told by God they're not going to eat. God provided for Daniel. Third and next to last here, I want you to think about Moses. Moses was concerned about his abilities to speak. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 1, he was worried they wouldn't listen to his voice. Verse 10, he was worried that his lack of eloquence in speaking would hinder him. But we're told that God provided for him. And Moses wanted God to send somebody else. Verse 13, but God provided for him everything that he would need to bring his people home. He gave him the ability to have miraculous power to instill belief among those in Egypt. Exodus 4, verses 2 through 9. He told Moses that he will help him in how to speak and with what to say to those that are in Egypt. Exodus 4, 11 through 12. And he told Moses that Aaron can go with him to be a spokesman and aid him. But you notice in Exodus 4 and verse 14, after all of these excuses have been made, the Bible tells us that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And when we find that mindset, it's that God was furious with him. God was angry at the mindset of Moses, that he would have the audacity to say, God, don't send me. God's basically saying, I chose you, go. You're going. Fine, you know what? You can take Aaron. He can be your spokesperson. And every excuse that Moses gave, God provided a solution and told him, I'm with you. Go. And when he did, we find God was with him. And he was with the children of Israel, and they were able to get out of Egypt. The final example is Esther. I have 
said this a couple years ago when we studied through the book of Esther that in my estimation and in my opinion, and that's all it is, but I, I do believe this is true, Esther is one of the greatest books that you can read for New Testament living, though it is an Old Testament book. There's reasons for that. God was present during the time of struggle. You know, the people didn't have their lives saved by Esther, though she played a part in that. And don't get me wrong, she stepped in, but God's the real hero. But you might be thinking ahead and say, well, God's not in the book. Not in an actual verse. You won't find the word God throughout the book of Esther. But by implication, he certainly is. When we studied this book a couple of years ago and I had this particular chapter of Esther where we're talking about Esther going before and the people fighting to stay alive, it dawned on me that a promise had been made by God. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, the Bible says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until who comes? Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And so what then would have happened to our hope of a savior if the Jews were annihilated. would have none. And so a promise that God made in an entirely different year and an entirely different book proves the existence of God and the presence of God throughout the book of Esther. Isn't that something? That a promise from long ago was proof that God would preserve the children of Israel and that Esther and her people would not be killed. They would not be annihilated. And God was patient during this time of struggle. We need to learn patience. In fact, I'm going to be preaching on patience this year. It's one of the things that I need to learn more of. And so I decided, hey, I'll preach on it. Maybe that'll help me, and then maybe I can help others by preaching on it. But we need to be as patient as we find the people in Esther. You know, where's the thus saith the Lord in the book of Esther? You won't find it. There is a book that is a good model. This book is a good model for how we have to handle problems today. There was no revelation given from God during the book of Esther. None that I found. There will be no additional revelation given from God today. We have all that we need in the word of God. And our revelation's been given. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 and as I mentioned earlier, we know miraculous power has ceased, 1 Corinthians 13, 9 and 10. And so this book is a perfect description of our world today. We have to be able to make decisions without verbal commands from the Lord. He's given us all that we need. And if you trust him, it'll work out. Finally, I want you to leave this lesson by thinking about the very mindset that God will provide. God will provide. While we don't know when something is providential or not, we do know that God will take care of us. I don't know what events in my life God had an absolute work in and, and didn't. But what I do know is that despite incredible difficult, incredibly difficult circumstances that I read throughout Scripture and even difficult circumstances that I've experienced, God has taken care of me as he's taken care of everyone else. He does that for all those who follow after him. He took care of Joseph, Daniel, Moses, Esther, among numerous others. He can easily take care of me. Finally, God provided in times past and will continue to provide for us today. You know, if you live faithfully, God takes care of you. Psalm 37, verses 23 through 25 say, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, 
and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. And then verse 25, you've probably heard quoted before. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging for bread. God takes care of you. Is it always going to be luxurious? Is it always going to be the, the best things in life? Probably not. But you and I don't need the best things in life to make it. We have a Father and a God that is greater than our circumstances. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Scattered Abroad Network. If you would like to email us, you can do so at thescatteredabroadnetwork at gmail.com. That's thescatteredabroadnetwork at gmail.com. Remember, you can check the show notes below for all of our social media platform links. Also, don't forget that you can find us on all major podcast platforms, and please leave us a rating or review. We hope and pray that this has helped you grow closer to Christ, even though we are scattered abroad. May God bless you.